Have you ever heard of the, the comic, The Far Side? So maybe two of you have. Maybe one of the most famous uh, comics from The Far Side, and, and you can look it up later afterwards, is a, a, a picture of a guy, and he's outside of a door, and above the door it reads, School for the Talented and Gifted. And on the door, very clearly on the door, written on the door, it says, Pull. And this guy is leaning on the door with all of his might, trying to push a pull door. And the irony of it is he's attending the school of the talented and gifted and yet doesn't realize that he needs to pull the door and not push the door to get in. Or maybe you've seen the memes that float around out there that are work smarter, not what? Harder. Work smarter, not harder. And, and we look at those things and we hear that phrase and, and we think, well, yeah, it it's, means what? It means try to do the job and get the job done, but you know, try to figure out a way to get the job done as, as easily as you possibly can. Well, believe it or not, that actually does apply to Christianity. The whole concept of, of work smarter, not harder, is something that we're going to look at in the passage before us tonight in Galatians chapter 2. That there's a, an, an element of what's going on in this passage where one of the, the men in the passage was trying to work harder and not smarter instead of the other way around. See, he was being tempted to go back to trusting in his works, trusting in what he was doing rather than trusting in the accomplished and finished work of Jesus Christ. See, in, in Christianity, if you want to get from where you are to eternity with God, the answer to that is not for you to work harder, but smarter. And smarter is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16 tonight. Grab your Bibles, your devices, whatever you have, make them over there. Make your way over there to Galatians chapter 2. Pick up in verse 11. It says this, but when Cephas came to Antioch, you guys know who Cephas is, yes? No? Maybe? Kind of? Cephas is Peter. It, it's from the Greek word or Aramaic, Aramaic word, actually they're kephos, which means rock. And you remember Peter's word, mean, Peter's name means what? Rock. And so this is another name for Peter. He went by Cephas sometimes, he went by Peter the other times. And so Paul is writing to the Galatian church and he says, hey, but when Cephas came to Antioch, now Antioch was a key town. It was one of the towns that was the, the first missionary stops of, of, of Paul. It was one of the towns where the, the church got its start and started to really take off and grow. In fact, it was at Antioch that the term Christian was first applied to people. And so this is a major hub of Christianity at this point in time. And so Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are, are Jews by birth but, and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
this is one of those situations where we're reminded when we read the Bible that these were letters written to a historical church at a historical time dealing with historical problems. Because right now, Peter's not living with us. Cephas isn't here with us. And and we're not looking live at what's going on over there in Antioch. But Paul was writing to the church in Galatia, and this had just happened. And so Paul is telling them what happened here. And what Paul is telling them is that he had to actually oppose Peter or confront Peter. And he had to do so publicly. And there are some that want to push back on Paul and say, well, Paul, you shouldn't have done that. But you have to remember, Peter was a key player in the church, wasn't he? Yes, Acts chapter 2, he's one of the leading figures in getting the church up and running and off the ground. And he's a public figure, and this is a public sin. So Paul's calling him out on his sin publicly. But we need to kind of wrap our minds around this because it seems a little bit weird as we read that. Like, what was the big deal? What was going on? He was eating, and then he wasn't eating. And why is this a problem? And what's, what's Paul's hang-up on this? Well, here's the scenario. Peter had been in Antioch. He was hanging out with Gentiles, right? Non-Jews. He was spending time with them. He was eating with them. He was fellowshipping with them. But then all of a sudden, these group, this group of, of Jewish Christians, or at least Jews from, sent from James, which is why I think they were Jewish Christians, sent from James. And James was, remember, the, the Lord's half-brother, Jesus' half-brother. And he's in, in Jerusalem at the time. And so James sends these Jewish Christians, or just Jews at, at minimum, to find out what's going on in Antioch and they show up and and Peter sees them show up and he all of a sudden stops hanging out with these Gentiles that he'd been hanging out with before. To drive it home and and give you an understanding of what that might be like, imagine if you had decided, hey, I'm going to go out to BJ's and just have dinner with a bunch of my friends from high school. And yeah, you know, they aren't believers, but you know, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I want to spend time with them because I want to, to, to be a light to them. And I want to hang out with them and I want to share the gospel with them. And I want to have these opportunities. So yeah, let's go. And they're friends and I enjoy being around them. So let's go hang out at, at BJ's together. And it's this group of friends. And maybe there's a couple of Christians in there, but maybe there's a couple of non-Christians in there too. And you guys are all together at BJ's, but then all of a sudden into BJ's walks a group of your church friends. And now all of a sudden you're aware that you're sitting at a table with people that man, don't believe all the same things that they believe. And they don't talk the same way that they talk. And oh man, some of these people don't even believe that God exists. And you see this group of church friends walk in and now all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, man, what are they going to think when they see me sitting here at this table with all these other people? And so you kind of politely excuse yourself. You get up from the table, you make some excuse like, oh dude, I just need to go use the bathroom or something. And you get up and you go and you walk over to that group of church friends and you Say, hey, what's going on? How's it going? Oh, yeah, I'm just here with some people. And, and oh, you guys have an extra seat at the table. Do you mind if I, I join your group? And you sit down with them for the rest of the night. You can imagine the impact that that would have on the first group that you were with, can't you? All of a sudden, they'd be looking at you going, man, what happened? You were with us, and, and, and now you're, you're not with us anymore. See, the the issue was Peter was worried that he was going to look bad in front of this Jewish delegation, these Jewish believers, these Jewish Christians that James had sent from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Peter was worried that him fellowshipping with Gentiles, with non-Jews, was going to get back to James and that James would be upset with Peter and James would think less of Peter because of this. And so Peter's looking to save face. So Peter pushes back from the table with the Gentiles and he's like, you know what, this has been great guys, but I'll see you later. And he goes to hang out with these Jewish Christians instead. You may wonder, well, what was James doing by sending these guys? 
We have to remember this was the early part of the church. This was the start of the church. And it's not until Acts chapter 15 that the, there's this council that's held at Jerusalem. And the, the, the Christians there, the, the new Christians, the Christian Jews are there at this council in Jerusalem. And they're trying to figure out what do we do with these Gentiles? Because before this, man, Gentiles and Jews had nothing to do with each other, right? Gentiles were unclean. Jews were the people of God. And now all of a sudden, the gospel is saying, you know what? The, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles is gone and all can be one in Christ. But the problem is these Jews who had held so fast to the law and all of the rules and restrictions about what you can eat and what you can't eat, what you can touch and what you can, can't touch. They're now trying to fellowship and live life with Gentiles who don't care anything about those things at all. And so we have to be able to empathize and sympathize a little bit with what's going on with the early church, with these Jewish Christians that are going, man, what is our relationship to the law? What should we require of these Gentile believers? What shouldn't we require of these Gentile believers? So I think that James sends this group of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem because he's trying to figure out, okay, what's going on there at Antioch? The, the church is blowing up. You guys are being called this new term called Christian and Gentiles and Jews are mixing together and eating together. James is probably just trying to figure out what's going on. But Peter sees this as a threat to his reputation. And so Peter pushes back and he says, you know what? I'm going to go hang out with them now. What's the big deal? Why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because Peter looks at, at these people coming and, and he changes his behavior. Not only does he change his behavior, but he does so, so dramatically and so drastically that the people that are hanging out with Peter are looking at Peter all of a sudden distance himself from this group of people, the Gentiles, some of whom probably needed to hear the gospel. And they're watching him leave the Gentiles behind and, and go to hang out with the Jews. And guess what they start doing? They follow Peter's lead. It says there in, in verse 13, in the rest of the Jews, the rest of the Jewish Christians acted, here's that word, what is the word? Hypocritically. Along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Dude, Barnabas is, it must have been thought highly of by Paul. Because he calls him out. He's like, look, even Barnabas went with Peter. Why was this hypocrisy? Because it was completely anti-gospel, Right? The message of the gospel, which Paul is going to get to here in a, in a moment, is you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. End of story. It's not about the law anymore. It's not about you following this rules and regulations and list of check, checklist of, of things you can and can't do. It's not about being clean and unclean because you are now clean, all of you, Jew and Gentile alike, what? In Christ. And if all people, Peter should have remembered this, right? Acts chapter 10, Peter has a, a, a vision. It's a great vision because it, it, it shows you that vegetarianism is not biblical. And if you're a vegetarian, don't, don't come talk to me afterwards, okay? Just submit to the Bible. Because Peter's on the roof in Acts chapter 10, and all of a sudden this sheet is lowered down from heaven in this vision that he has, and there's animals on the sheet. And the, the animals that are on the sheet, they're, they're unclean animals according to the Jews, and Peter hears a voice from heaven. It's the voice of God. And the voice of God says, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. It's the battle cry of every warm-blooded Christian man, yes? Arise, kill, and eat. And in fact, this vision happens not once, not twice, but three times. And finally, Peter's like, oh, I get it. And then right after this, somebody shows up at Peter's house. And he's like, hey, uh, there's this dude named Cornelius. Oh, by the way, he's a Gentile, not a Jew. But he fears God. 
And he had a vision that said that I should come get you, Peter, to come and talk to Cornelius and tell him more about Jesus. And so Peter leaves and goes with them to Cornelius' house and, and shares the gospel with this guy, Cornelius. So, so Peter should have understood and, and recognized that, hey, you know what? The old way of doing things, abiding by the law, keeping the law, what's clean, what's unclean, you know, that's no more anymore. What's here now is the gospel. But Peter was acting hypocritically and leading others to do so as well. Well, why is this such a big deal? Well, think about the people that Peter was abandoning. These people, these Gentiles that Peter had been eating with, that he had been with, with Barnabas and these other Jews, and, and they were enjoying fellowship together, and they were hanging out together, and they were building relationships with each other. In fact, like I said, some of them probably weren't even Christians at the time and were still finding out more about the gospel and more about Jesus. And Peter was spending time with them in order to share the gospel with them. And now all of a sudden, these Jews show up from James, these Jewish Christians show up from James, and Peter pieces out from these guys. He bails on them. He leaves, and then all of a sudden, all of Peter's buddies leave with Peter. And if you you're the Gentiles, you're left sitting there going, what's the deal? I thought you said we were one in Christ. I thought you said there's no Jew and Gentile anymore. I thought you said that it's by grace alone through faith alone. What, where did you go, Peter? Why won't you eat with me anymore? Why won't you look at me anymore when we pass by each other? Why won't you? What's going on, man? And you can see the damage that this could have done. The damage this could have done to their witness, to their testimony, the damage this could have done to the gospel, that this could have undermined everything that the Christians were working for there in Antioch. To, to take the gospel to the lost, to take the gospel to the lost, whether you're Jew or Gentile, it, it, it didn't matter. They needed Christ. And Peter's sitting there and Peter's acting like a hypocrite and others are following him. And Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter two, he's saying, look, I opposed Peter to his face. In other words, I openly publicly stood against him and rebuked him for what he was doing. It's amazing when you think about that, right? It should cause us to remember and it should cause us to think, man, if, if, if that could happen to Peter, it could happen to me. First point tonight is this, beware of spiritual complacency. Beware of spiritual complacency. Remember who this is, right? This is Peter. If this had been Matthias, the guy that shows up in Acts chapter one to replace Judas, and that's like his 15 minutes of fame, and then we don't really learn a whole lot about Matthias after that. If this had been Matthias, we're like, okay, whatever. It's Matthias. He was the last one in, you know, whatever. We expect that from Matthias. Come on, Matthias, right? But this is Peter that we're talking about. This is the guy, Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus looks at Peter and he says this, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. In other words, Peter, you're going to play an integral role in building the church and expanding the church and spreading the gospel and in, informing in, in the church. Peter, you're the guy. Jesus is looking at Peter going, dude, it's you, Peter. This is the same guy in, in Acts chapter two, then the, the, the sermon after Pentecost when they start speaking in tongues and there are people there that are like, look at these guys, they're drunk. And Peter's like, we're not drunk. In fact, why don't you sit down and let me tell you a little bit about what's going on. And Peter launches into this sermon, by the way, that's my translation, uh, this sermon. And he's, 
He's preaching Christ to these masses and telling Jew and Gentile alike who had all gathered there together in Jerusalem. And he's telling all of them, look, you need to trust in Jesus Christ. This is Peter from Acts chapter three who encounters a lame man as they're going up to the temple to worship. And the lame man is there and he's, he's begging for money, right? And Peter looks at this lame man, this man who was crippled. And he looks at him and he says, look, I don't have any money, but one thing I have to you, I say, rise and walk. And all of a sudden the man by the power of Peter's words is healed. He gets up and he walks into the temple and he worships God. This is Peter that we're talking about. It's Peter from Acts chapter three. Verses 12 and following that preaches another phenomenal sermon. This is Peter who had been arrested for the gospel, beaten for the gospel. This is Peter who was in prison and the earthquake happens and, and he, or not the earthquake, but he's, he's freed by the angel and he walks out and he goes and he knocks on the door and they're like, oh, it's the ghost of Peter. And Peter's like, no, dude, it's, it's me. Open the door, right? This is Peter who had seen the resurrected Jesus. This is Peter who had walked with the resurrected Jesus in John chapter 21 after he had denied Jesus three times and Jesus three times restores Peter while he's on the beach. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? This is Peter that we're talking about here. And he's the one that Paul is rebuking, confronting, calling on the carpet for acting like a hypocrite. If there's anyone that we would never expect this behavior from, and we wouldn't expect it from Peter. But that's the point. That's the point that I want us to see. When we, when we become spiritually complacent, in other words, when we grow comfortable as Christians, when we get lazy as Christians, when we think that we're fine, that we're good, and when self-righteousness begins to, to creep in as Christians, that's when the temptation for us to drift from the gospel is stronger than ever. And so as you think about your standing with God. There are some things that we are tempted to put our trust in that, guys, we just can't put our trust in. First thing you can't trust is your spiritual pedigree. In other words, you can't trust in, in your, the family that you come from. For some of you, you're like, man, that is good news. I don't want to trust in the family that I came from. But for some of you, you've got a, a great and godly family. You know, for some of you, you have been at a, with a family that's either been at Compass for years or at another church for years. Your family has been involved in serving. Your family is known in the church and people look at your family and man, that's an awesome family or such a good family, godly family. We're so thankful to have them in the church. They've brought you up. You've been raised in the church by them. They're the ones that share the gospel with you. But here's the deal, guys. At some point in time, your faith has to become your faith because you can't ride the coattails of mom and dad's faith into heaven. And so you can't put your trust in your spiritual pedigree. You also can't put your trust in your spiritual resume. Thinking, man, I'm, I'm good with God because I, I, I'm, look, I did Awana. I did Edge. I did The Narrow. I did True North. I'm doing The Bridge. Come on, look at my resume. I'm good with God. Look at, I, I've, I've done it. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I've checked all the boxes. So I'm good. I'm good. Can't trust your spiritual resume. In fact, Paul didn't, right? Philippians chapter three. Paul gives us his resume. And then he says, you know what? That's, that's garbage. It's dung. In light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here's what I'm gonna do, y'all. I'm gonna put all that behind me, forgetting what lies behind. Paul said, I'm gonna press on towards what lies ahead. 
can't trust in your spiritual resume. You also can't trust in your good kid status. That, you know, you grew up and you were the, the kid that mom and dad's friends always said, man, you guys have such good kids. That your teachers at school always said, man, this person's such a good kid. You can't trust in your good kid status in your relationship with God. But here's the other thing. You, you can't trust in yesterday. Maybe yesterday was nails for you spiritually. You were in the word. You were worshiping to whatever in, in the car. Not whatever. Something that's good in the car. You were praying. You were in tune. You, you had lunch with your accountability partner. You were just nails. And you're like, man, yesterday was a good day. I'm good. Right? No, you can't trust in yesterday because today's a new day. You can't trust in last week. Man, last week was good. You can't trust in the last month. Man, last month was good. You can't trust in the last year. See, the point is you can't let your guard down. You can't grow complacent. You can't think, well, I'm good because look at the family I came from. You can't think I'm good because look at my spiritual resume. You can't think, man, I'm good because I'm the good kid. You can't think to yourself, man, I'm, I'm good because look at the track record recently in my life. I've just been on fire for Christ. So let me kind of kick it into neutral and take a break. You can't take a vacation from your pursuit of Jesus because that's when you grow spiritually complacent and that's where the temptation to drift from the gospel enters in. Y'all, and that's what Peter was dealing with. Peter had grown complacent. He had forgotten what matters most. And what matters most is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 through 12. And he's specifically talking about temptation and impurity. But I think it applies as well to what we're talking about here, about not growing spiritually complacent. And in verse 12, he makes this statement. He says, take heed lest you, what? Fall. Watch yourself so that you don't fall. Don't become so conceited. Don't become so self-righteous that you end up drifting into a state of spiritual complacency, which just opens the door for you to fall. In fact, self-righteousness leads to gospel amnesia. You start to forget that it was Jesus that brought you to where you are. That it's Jesus that did for you what you needed to have done for you. In fact, in that context there that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 through 12, he's alluding to and looking back to the, the Israelites that God had led out of Egypt. How many of the Israelites, well, no, let me back up. The Israelites come out of, of Egypt, right? And, and it's all smooth sailing from there, right? No. In fact, they come out of Egypt and, and almost immediately, what do they start doing? Complaining, right? God had 10 plagues, Plague of the firstborn, Passover, killing these lambs, putting blood on the doorpost. Egyptians giving them all this gold and saying, hey, just leave. They leave and then here comes Pharaoh's army. Oh no, we're at the Dead Sea. Oh no, what are we going to do? Or the Red Sea. Oh no, what are we going to do? We're going to die, Moses. You let us out here to die. And then Moses is like, boom, right? And the Red Sea splits and they walk across on dry land. And then they're like, oh no, here comes Pharaoh's army. And, and Moses is like, chill, I got it. And then boom, if he clapped, I don't know, just my vision of things. And the water comes back and just wipes out Pharaoh's army and all the chariots right? And the Israelites are on now on the other side of the Red Sea going, did you just see that? And then the next day they wake up hungry and they're like, Moses. And they're grumbling and they're complaining. In fact, they're grumbling and complaining gets so bad that eventually God says this, all right, that's it. You're not going to see the promised land. 
And he wipes out an entire generation who had grown spiritually complacent and forgotten that God had delivered them. An entire generation gone because of spiritual complacency. You and I, we can't grow spiritually complacent. We can't think we're good, that we've arrived and forget that it's God that got us to where we are through Jesus. That where you are tonight, you are righteous before God, not because of you, not because of your pedigree, not because of your resume, not because of your good kid status, not because of your track record, but you're righteous before God because of Jesus. One thing that'll help us in this is pondering the end of everything. Thinking to ourselves, man, when, when Jesus comes back, my family status isn't going to matter. You know, my, my resume isn't really going to matter as far as my entrance into heaven. My status, you know, isn't really going to matter. There's one thing that will matter. And that is, what did you do with Jesus? Did you follow him or did you forsake him? Did you trust him? That's the key. And see, when we forget that, we become complacent. And we, like Peter, all of a sudden think to ourselves, man, oh, oh, I don't want to be around these Gentiles anymore because what if they think I'm unclean? I need to separate from them and I need to go hang out with the Jews over here and like, don't worry guys, I'll catch up with you later. But for right now, just play it cool because I got to be with these guys over here. See, that's what Peter was doing. and He was forgetting the gospel. Verse 15, Paul continues on. He says, look, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, this was the root of Peter's hypocrisy. He was looking to the law again instead of the gospel. And this is why Peter, why, Peter, why Paul brings this up in Galatians. Because remember, Paul's writing to a group, to a, a group of Christians who had been told by this other group called the Judaizers, hey, you know what? It's, it's fine that you think about Jesus and, and all that and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, but, but that's not really the full picture. You also have to do some of these things in the law. And so Paul's talking to this, this group here in Galatia saying, hey, let me tell you about a real life example of this. Let me tell you about when I opposed Peter because Peter was tempted to follow what these Judaizers are also tell, telling you you need to do. And Paul points out the hypocrisy, but he starts by saying this in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he's like, look, th th there is a difference between us. At least ethnically there is, and, and even, even religiously there is, right? Paul writes this in Romans chapter three. Romans 3, 1 through 4. Paul says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He says, Much. There's a great advantage, he says, in every way. To begin with, the, the Jews were entrusted with the messages of God, the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God to Israel? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, Paul is saying, look, Israel is still a thing. The Jews are still a thing. In fact, it's, we'll find out later in Romans that it's the church that's grafted into Israel, not Israel that's grafted into the church. 
And so Paul's saying, look, there is something about being a Jew. Romans 9, 4 through 5. Romans 9, 4 through 5, Paul says in Romans 9, 4, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ or is the Messiah who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And so Paul's saying, look, there is something significant about the Jewish people. He's not trying to say, you know what? The Jews don't matter at all. Forget them. Let's just be the church in, in whatever. No, he's saying, in fact, that the Jews were the ones that first received the promises of God. The Jews were the ones from whom the Messiah actually even came. And yet Paul says this, but, and now's where he comes back to the gospel. He's like, this is what Peter was missing. And this is what is under attack in the church in Galatia right now. But he says, we need to understand this. We know that a person, Jew or Gentile, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See, if the Jews have an advantage, they may have an advantage, but they don't have an advantage when it comes to salvation. When it comes to salvation, we are all in the same boat every single one of us in need of being justified through faith in Jesus Christ apart from works. The word justified means this. It means to be declared righteous. It's a courtroom term. It's a courtroom term where the judge bangs the gavel and declares not just that you're not guilty, but that you are in fact innocent because you are righteous. You are pure. You are holy, right? So to be justified is something that's ours, not by, he says, works of the law, but by what? Faith. And so when Peter's sitting there and he's like, oh man, I'm hanging out with these Gentiles and I'm telling them about Jesus and I'm telling them about faith. Oh, whoa, there's the Jews. I need to go hang out over there. Peter's forgetting that everyone alike needs to be justified by faith, not by works of the law. What does Paul mean though when he says this, when he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law? What does he mean there? Well, something that he's talking about legalism, that he's saying, man, those that want to say, in order for you to be saved, you have to do this, 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 and this. I don't think that's what Paul was talking about here. What he's talking about here is the impossibility of obeying the entirety of the law. Because look, if, if you want to be justified by the law, that's your standard. It's not just one commandment that you feel like you can hit. It's not just a group of five or 10 commandments that you feel like you can hit. It's the whole kit and caboodle. When's the last time you heard that phrase? I don't know. I don't know when the last time I said that phrase was, but I just did. So there you go. And it's on film. <laughs> James 2.10 says this. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, James says, has become guilty of it all. So you keep the whole law, you nail it, but you fail in one point. You slipped up in one weekend, you boiled a goat in its mother's milk. It's an Old Testament commandment, by the way. It's weird, but it's there. James is going, dude, you're guilty of the entirety of it. The entirety of it. If you fall short in one area, you're guilty of the entirety of offending the entire law. This is what led Job to say this, Job 9.2. Job said, truly, I know that this is so. How can a man be right before God. 
And the answer is, we can't by the law. And that's what Paul is reminding us in Galatians chapter two. He's saying, look, you want to be justified by works of the law? Number one, it's impossible. Number two, you are a fool if you want to do that. Because you don't get to pick and choose the commandments that you want to be justified by. You're guilty of the entire thing. You have to be, uh, you have to nail the entirety of it. And oh, if you've already failed once, by the way, you, you lost. Which means for everybody, what? We've lost. So he's saying, don't go back to the law. These people that Galatia, the, the Christian church, church in, in Galatia, Christians, people that are telling you, you need to obey the law, follow the law. Let me tell you, man, they're trying to tell you to do something that you can't do, that's impossible to do. Don't give in. No one is justified by works of the law. Romans 3, 19 through 20. Paul says something similar. Romans 3, 19 through 20. He says, now we know that wherever or whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that here he says this, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. What does the law do? It shuts me up and puts me in subjection to God. He says, that's the purpose right there. For by works of the law, verse 20, no human being will be justified, declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes instead, what? Knowledge of sin. So Paul's looking at Peter, Paul's looking at the church in Galatia and those that are tempted to follow the, the Jews that are saying, hey, you guys need to, to follow the law. And he's looking at them going, are you crazy? Are you nuts right now? No one can be justified by keeping the works of the law. It's impossible. It's foolish to think that. No, instead, what you need to realize is if you want to be justified, Again, what? Work smarter, not harder. If you want to be justified, it's not about obeying every single law. It's about what? Trusting, following, loving, pursuing who? Jesus, right? Point number two tonight is this. Remember the overwhelming blessing of salvation by faith. Remember the overwhelming blessing of salvation by faith. The overwhelming blessing of salvation by faith. It's like this, right? All of us owe a debt we can't pay. Some may owe $1,000 and yet not be able to pay it. Some may owe $10,000 and yet not be able to pay it. Someone may owe $100,000 and not be able to pay it. The point is all of us are in the same boat. We can't pay the debt that we owe. It's too much for us. The point isn't, isn't the amount of debt, but again, the, the, that inability that you and I have to pay it back. And the gospel says that Jesus came in and stepped in and did what? Paid the debt. He paid the debt. He satisfied our accounts. And not only did he pay the debt, but then he filled up our bank accounts to overflowing with his righteousness, right? So it's not that he just put us back square with God. He put us not just square with God, but we are now adopted sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We've gone from God being our creditor to now all of a sudden he's our father. That's an amazing transformation. And that comes when Jesus comes and he pays the debt that you and I owe that we couldn't pay, right? See, that's the, the overwhelmingly good news of the gospel, that that's a transaction that takes place through not meriting it, not earning it, not working for it, but through what? Through trusting Jesus as our savior, Yes. But what Paul is finding that people are wanting to do is, is people are wanting to, to, to go back 
before God and, and, and say, hey, but, but can I have a shot at being justified by my works now? Which would be like you and I going back to our creditor and being like, hey, I just got a job. Do you mind if, I know this guy over here just paid my debt for me, but, but can I try to pay it back to you on my own? Do you see how foolish that would be? See how pointless that would be? See how redundant that would be? But that's what we do with God when we bring our works to him and we're like, hey, do you love me more now? Do you love me more now that I did my daily Bible reading this week? Do you love me more now that I prayed? Hey God, do you love me more now that I broke up with this person? Hey God, do you love me more now that uh, I'm serving in the church? The answer is no. He can't love you more. Why? Because he already loved you to the ultimate expression of his love, which was through what? Sending Christ for you to pay the debt that you couldn't pay. That's the ultimate expression of the love of God. God cannot love you any more than killing Jesus for your sins. And so we need to quit it with going before God and going, hey God, do you love me more now that I've done X, Y, and Z? Because what we're doing there is we're trying to be justified by works of the law and not by faith in Jesus Christ. Whatever those measurables are for you in your relationship with God, daily Bible reading, prayer, victory over sin, church involvement. Those things are all fine and good, but guys, those things don't impact your eternal standing before God. Do you understand that? Are they essential for you as a believer in Jesus Christ? Sure they are. Yes, they are an important part of your relationship with Jesus, but they do not impact your eternal standing before God. One thing impacts that, and that is what have you done with Jesus? Have you followed him or forsaken him? Have you trusted Jesus. And the question tonight to, to ask yourself, and it's only a, an answer that you would be able to give is this, you know, if, if Paul were here and Paul were seeing your life, looking at a film of your life, would he rebuke you the way that he rebuked Peter? Would he oppose you the way that he opposed Peter? Have we forgotten the overwhelmingly good news of the gospel that we are justified again, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But we are justified instead by what? By faith in Jesus Christ. Saved by faith. You guys may feel like, man, we're only in Galatians chapter 2. How many chapters are there in this book again? Six? Yep. And how many times have we heard about the gospel already? It's getting redundant. It's getting repetitive. But guys, guess what? I, I'm not sorry about that. Number one, it's the Bible. And so I can only preach what the Bible has. I can't change the menu of what Paul is offering us here. But number two, the reason why I don't apologize is because what's at stake? Because if we don't have Jesus right, we have nothing right. If we don't have the gospel right, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Because if I start preaching to you about morality and I start preaching to you about this and I start preaching to you about that and you want to learn about this doctrine and that doctrine and this theology and that theology and everything else and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I'm putting lipstick on a pig. Because it's pointless. You have to have Jesus there. Jesus has to be in place. The gospel has to be in place. And look, the message of the gospel is truly work smarter, not harder. And the smart work for us to do is to put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Because he's the one that did the hard work for us. He's the one that paved the way. He's the one 
He's the one for us. If you want to be justified, if you want to be right with God, if you're here tonight and you're like, man, I'm not, but I want to be, the answer is believe in Jesus as your Savior. That he paid the debt that you could not pay. The debt that your sins owe. Jesus paid that debt for you. And it's not a loan. It's paid in full. Paid in full. And now you are, if you trust in Jesus, justified before the Father. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for that reality. Grateful that Jesus died for us. Paid the debt that we could not pay for us in that death, God that he rose from the dead, that he's a living savior, that he's a a dynamic savior, that we can have a relationship with him. Lord, and, and we're so grateful that that relationship comes not through us trying to be right with you through what we do, through doctrine, through theology, through works, through obedience, through cleaning ourselves up and coming before you going, okay, God, do you love me more now? But God, the fact that it is that you've already loved us to the fullest by giving us Jesus. God, thank you that salvation is not found in works. That statement, no one is justified by works of the law. There is no greater news for us to hear than that statement because that means that there's another means for us to be justified and that means is faith in what Jesus has done for us because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus paid the debt that we could not pay. Jesus was the one whom you made to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be declared righteous, not just not guilty, not just acquitted, not just a mistrial, but innocent, righteous, holy, justified before you, God. It's amazing news. It's such good news. And so, God, I pray that you would guard us against drifting into a sense of self-righteousness, forgetting the gospel, forgetting what got us here, forgetting what's forgiven our sins, forgetting all of these. Lord, Lord, I, I pray that you would protect us against that and keep us anchored to the gospel, keep us humble, keep us dependent upon Jesus, keep us thankful for Jesus, God, every single minute of every single day of our lives because he is our life, he is our righteousness, he is our justification, Lord. May we never, ever forget that. Thank you that salvation is through faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.